0: Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. What a week or so we have had with the presidential campaign, the never-ending legal travail of Donald Trump, and the press covering both. And I think the press is due for some really strong criticism They continue to treat this race like it's just another campaign. We had the winners and losers of the debate. We had people speculating, gosh, maybe one of the candidates will go up a point or two in the polls after the race. This is inappropriate coverage, if you will, for a time in which what we are facing is a contest between fascism and democracy, One party behaving like a normal political party and the other lining up behind a guy that's, for all intents and purposes, a right-wing strongman. I don't mean that he's strong. I mean that he's in the mode of the Mussolini's, the Berlusconi's, those types of figures who traffic in propaganda, who traffic in abuse of women, who defy the rule of law and who use violence instrumentally. And the press continues to ignore that. And what happens when they do that? They domesticate the Republican Party and Trump. They make him seem more acceptable, more normal. And that's what they should not be doing. That may give them a false sense that they are above it all, that they're not taking sides, that they are neutral. But in fact, that's not educating the American people because they are giving the Republican Party and Trump specifically, cover, if you will, to behave in totally inappropriate ways. And so when we get Trump's legal schedule, the story should not be, gosh, the campaign's calendar is going to get really messed up this year. It should be, my God, an entire political party has lined up behind a guy who has innumerable pending litigation, both criminal and civil, and who is accused of overthrowing the government. And yet the Republican Party is still behind him, and yet he continues with his campaign. Why is that? Why can millions of Americans remain deluded and remain tied to this guy? That's what we should be covering. So as we move from that to what is really occurring, I think the legal wrangling over the last week or so is noteworthy for one particular reason. The Trump people, and Trump in particular, have never respected women, and they surely have never respected black women. And I think it is affecting the way they are litigating in Georgia to their detriment. We saw one of the Trump lawyers, Kenneth Chesbro, who was one of the guys who came up with a phony elector scheme, demand a quick trial in Georgia. It's because he thinks somehow he's going to catch Fawny Willis off guard. Ah, Just this African-American woman, local prosecutor, she can't possibly be ready. And in fact, when he made the request for a early trial, a speedy trial, she said, fine, October 23, let's go. So I think they underestimate her at their peril. Another example we saw when Mark Meadows trooped into federal court on Monday... And testified um, in his own case for removing the case, moving the case from state to federal court. First of all, this is mind-bogglingly risky and pretty dumb, to be honest. You never want to waive the Fifth Amendment, which is what he did. And sure enough, what did he do? He confessed that he was in the thick of all of this kind of stuff. He was in every meeting. He was in every call. And to the extent to which he thinks that he can worm his way out of federal court or exonerate him entirely because some of his duties may have been within the confines of his office at as uh, chief of staff, he also made clear that a bunch of stuff he's doing was political. And in fact, the judge remarked upon that. And now the judge wants the parties to brief him to submit filings on whether If a little bit of the conduct is within his official duties, he can still get into federal court. What does that mean? It means that the judge has perceived that a whole bunch of what Mark Meadows did is outside the scope of his duties. Even if he gets into federal court, this judge has essentially hinted he's not going to buy a total immunity defense. So why did Meadows do this? Why did he think it was a good idea to waive all of his Fifth Amendment privileges, to get into court, to testify? Again, I think it's because they've underestimated Fawny Willis. Did they expect her to be loaded for bear on Monday when she came in and took him chapter and verse through her indictment, pointing out all the ways in which he had acted as a political operative, not as chief of staff? I don't think so. Did they think that she would be uncomfortable, off guard in federal court, since she usually appears in state court? Well, if that's what they were thinking, she sure seemed at home. She was sure making her points with that judge. So again, we come back to this observation that I've made. Over and over again, Trump has expressed fury, contempt for African-American women, whether it's Fannie Willis whether it's Judge Chetkin, who is the judge in the D.C. January 6th case, it oozes from every pore, And as a result of that, I think, first of all, his attorney has already managed to infuriate Judge Chutkin by overacting in his histrionics in court. But moreover, they are making now litigation decisions that are foolish, that are harming themselves. And that's Specifically, I think, a result of their own thinking, their own racist, misogynistic thinking. So if you think things don't come back to haunt him, maybe think again. Maybe really the chickens are coming home to roost. And to talk about all of that and to talk about the litigation strategy for Trump and talk about all of this litigation about voting rights, about gerrymandering, we have the perfect person. And that is Mark Elias. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Mark is the litigator... Of all litigators, when it comes to voting rights, and in fact, Republicans keep complaining, we need our own Mark Elias, but Mark works for the good guys, not the bad guys, so they have to go get their own person. But they will not find someone as brilliant as Mark who has litigated up one court and down the next state, federal court. He was involved in the post-2020 litigation. He's been involved in virtually every important voting rights decision, including some will talk about, the Alabama redistricting case. Um, But let's start talking about um, lawyering, good lawyering, bad lawyering. What do you think of Trump's legal strategy, if we can call it that way, uh, and his lawyers so far? So,
1: you know, I'm very loathe normally to criticize lawyers. Because in some ways, you know, you're dealt the hand that you are, particularly in criminal cases. You know, you, you inherit the, the, the clients <coughs> that, that you have. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump has never surrounded himself with particularly talented lawyers. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, he has oftentimes had his lawyers make ridiculous and frivolous arguments. We saw that in, in 2020, for example, but I have to say, you know, the the criminal defense lawyers representing Donald Trump are just not doing him any favors. You know, I mean, there are some things that you can control and there are things you can't control. You can't control what your client did. You may or may not be able to control what Donald Trump is, you know, their client is doing now, but you can certainly uh, control what you are saying on TV and the tone you're using when addressing judges. And I I just don't understand what his lawyers think they're accomplishing.
0: So, for example, um, in front of Judge Chetkin uh, this Monday, we saw John Loro, uh, who was at times, you know, I don't have the um, audio of it, but you could tell he's just screaming and carrying on. And not once, but twice, she tells him to take the temperature down. Why is that a bad idea to do that with a judge on really your very first appearance before any other issue has come up?
1: Yeah, so look, um, the judge is going to call balls and strikes. And the judge is going to call balls and strikes on a lot of big things. But the judge is also going to call balls and strikes on a lot of little things like, you know, uh, when a trial date begins you know how you know how early discovery gets turned over or how you know pretrial motions get decided or deferred for trial evidentiary rulings at trial like there are, the judge in a criminal case is constantly having to make decisions and you know you have here a very experienced judge you have a judge who knows how to run a courtroom a judge who knows how to run a case And, you know, you're appearing before this judge. I think this is his first case ever before this judge. And you can either, you know, appear reasonable. And then when a really big issue arises that you want to raise the stakes for with the judge to let the judge know this is a really important thing for us, you do it. But, you know, he came in way too hot on— on matters that are very routine. I mean, you know, I understand the former president has a perspective on when he'd like the trial to be, but honestly, scheduling are, are issues that are well kept within the province of, of what a trial judge thinks. And, you know, Laura was just not in, was just way out of line in the tone he was using with a federal judge who was really resolving what were a series of pretrial scheduling issues.
0: In Georgia State Court, which is the other hot courtroom these days, the defendants seem to be all over the place. Some of them want to go to federal court. Some of them want to stay. Some of them want quick trials. Trump apparently wants to delay. What's your overall take on the lawyering? And if you had one of the defendants, what would you be looking for in terms of timing and venue that you would prefer to be in?
1: So I think this is a harder call than it's being portrayed in the media. You know, people say, well, you know, they want to be in federal court because um, a broader jury pool. And that's true. It is a broader jury pool, but it is not a wide open jury pool. You know, it's still a it's still you're still drawing a jury pool that is, um, you know, going to be a fair jury uh, either way. And I do wonder whether or not the people who. Immediately, you want to push this case into federal court. Realize that there are actually some benefits for the government in being a federal court as well. You know, in terms of nationwide service process um, uh, and the and the like. Um, I've appeared before Judge Jones. I have cases before him. He's a very good federal judge. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I think that I think that. I'd I put the defendants in kind of a few buckets. Um, I think Mark Meadows has an excellent lawyer. George T. Williger is a very good lawyer, um, so I'm not going to second guess their decision to, you know make their case in federal court. But you can tell that his lawyers want no part of the rest of the misfit gang. You know, they, they really want that here. They really, I think, would like to be in federal court by themselves. Uh, I don't know if they'll get that wish or not. Um, but I think that, you know, out, other than Meadows' lawyers, I think the jury is out on how competent a job any of the other lawyers are doing or not doing in that case.
0: What has struck me is that Fannie Willis is very prepared. You know, she's had this case for two years. A lot of people thought, including me, that she was going to get her indictment at the beginning of the year. She's waited. She's waited. I sense that she is a lot better prepared than they think she is. That somehow they figured, oh, we'll have a quick trial and we'll trip her up somehow. She seems pretty ready. She seems pretty prepared.
1: Yeah, I think the folks seeking—I—I uh, I, I didn't address that specifically. I think the people addressing are, are who are seeking um, speedy trials are are making a mistake for themselves. Uh, you know, I think that there is um, there is the bravado of of coming into a courtroom and saying, "Oh, we want a speedy trial," and there is the you know the outrageous delaying tactics that you've seen Trump engage in in uh, or try to engage in the federal court, but you know. Almost always, and certainly in a high-profile case like this, the government is more prepared for trial than the defendants, you know. So so I think in the federal case, the, the judge recognized that and said, you know, January's too soon, we'll give you till March, and that is a reasonable schedule. I, I think any defendant who is showing up in Fulton County court— Um, in a case that, as you say, the the prosecutor has investigated for years now, has had grand jury witnesses and has thought this through, you know, by seeking a speedy trial, you're giving up a lot. For example, you're giving up a lot of pretrial motions practice, for example, Uh, you know, because you can either have a quick trial or you can have a lot of pretrial motions, but you really can't have both. So I I think the, 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 the folks who are coming in and saying they want a speedy trial are Probably not well serving their clients, even though it feels good in the moment. Um, I I think, you know, the, the rest of them, like I said, the jury is out on.
0: Fair enough. Which gears to your bread and butter, which is voting rights law. There was a decision in the Supreme Court um, that you have been involved in, holding that Alabama had to redo their congressional districts, that they needed a second district that was majority black. They sent it back to Georgia. Georgia lawmakers... Apparently didn't listen or alabama, decided to s- alabama. I'm sorry, uh, Alabama decided to snub their nose at the uh, Supreme Court and they came up with something that did not comply with the Supreme Court's direction. What are they thinking and what's going on now in that case in Alabama?
1: Yeah, so um, this is uh, Alan Milligan. This is one of the two cases the Supreme Court heard last term that involved voting, um, that uh, many people were surprised in the outcome. In both cases, um, my firm was involved. In both cases, we won. Um, And this case was always curious from the beginning because it involved the application of a provision of the Voting Rights Act Section 2 that has been in place since, you know, in its current form since 1982 and has really not garnered much controversy. It basically says that where you have racially polarized voting, in other words, white voters won't elect the candidate of choice of, for example, in Alabama, black voters, and where you can draw a single district that is um, uh, majority-minority that... Uh, You know, basically you have to do that. There's some more bells and whistles to the test, but that's that's basically um, the test. And Alabama was sued because it created one majority black district. The population of Alabama uh, supports the creation of a second majority black district. Alabama um, uh, was sued. Uh, and they lost before a three judge panel. And this gets lost, Jen, sometimes in the discussion of this Alabama case. The three judge panel was two judges appointed by President Trump. Uh, one originally appointed by Ronald Reagan. So this was not exactly, you know, a liberal panel. And they unanimously held that there needs to be a second uh, African-American majority district. Alabama appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court really because they thought that that the new conservative Supreme Court would would just, you know, side with them because whatever, uh, because they would just side with the, the state of Alabama. That didn't happen. And so Alabama found itself under a court order to create uh, two districts that with two districts with greater than 50 percent black voting age population. They drew a map that had one district at over 50 percent and the other district at 39 percent, which is not over 50 percent. And what's going on is that the Republicans in Alabama just don't want to comply with the law. And so they are in violation of a court order. Kevin McCarthy apparently called down there and, you know, one can assume urged them not to comply with the law. And I've told folks from the beginning of, of this remedial process that in the end, the, the the court is going to draw its own map. I mean, you know, if the state of Alabama won't comply with the law, the court has hired a an expert map drawer. And that You know, so what I anticipate is going to happen in the next few days or weeks will be the court in Alabama will decide that 39 is not greater than 50 uh, and will order the that court uh, court's own expert to draw two districts that are more than 50 percent black. But I think, Jen, it goes to a larger cultural question, which is why, you know, in in 2023, Are Republican legislatures feeling like they can just disregard court orders?
0: And the answer may be that they think that there's a very partisan Supreme Court that's going to bail them out. But it's also as if we're back in... You know, the great, you know, the mass resistance of the 1960s and 70s, you know, Brownview Board of Education told school districts to desegregate and the Southern Manifesto came back and said, no, we're not going to follow the Supreme Court. That's kind of what we're seeing here, isn't it? It is.
1: And I think that that's the key point, because it's not that they think there's a conservative Supreme Court because they already lost in the Supreme Court right? That that gambit passed. It is that they believe there is no political price to be paid for denying minority voting rights and defying a court order. And that is reminiscent of the 1960s when white uh, elected officials in some states thought that defying court orders was good local politics was good electoral politics for them. And the question uh, that we all ought to be asking ourselves, why is that the case in 2023? And I think the answer is not entirely simple, but a good piece of it is that Donald Trump has created a, a permission structure and an electoral structure that rewards Republicans for doing outrageously terrible things when it comes to voting and voting rights and democracy.
0: And. Obviously, you can't look at this without looking at the whole pattern of post-2020 Republican initiatives at the state level, which, um, for lack of a better word, were either voter repression or voter distortion measures that look to make either voting more difficult or make it more susceptible to political pressure from Republicans. That's been a pretty much your life's work over the last year or so. Give us a sense of how much of that has remained, how much of it has been trimmed back, and what you still find are the problem areas around the country uh, in red states, but also in states, frankly, um, that are, for lack of a better term, considered swing states, but they may have had a Republican legislature or a Republican governor.
1: Yeah, so... um it's important for people to realize, as a baseline, that the Republican Party no longer commands a majority of the electorate, and it doesn't compete for a majority of the electorate. You know, Jen, you and I remember a Republican Party that prided itself on popular mandates. You know, Ronald Reagan talked about mandates, that was a critical part of his governing power. Um, uh, George. Bush, when he lost the popular vote in 2000, told his campaign in 2004 to spend money to to run up some totals in New York and New Jersey and California, even though he wasn't going to win those states, so that it wouldn't be a repeat, that that there was a force of having a popular mandate. Republicans have given that up. They're, right now in the Republican Party, you get praised for coming up with clever ways of, we, of wielding minority or majority power with a minority of the electorate. So Republicans, in a nutshell, are trying to make it um, harder to vote and easier to cheat because it's the only way that they can do that. And they are becoming more and more desperate. So here's a statistic that I think will help you uh, and your audience um, think about it. So in 2020, there were 100 and... Um, 143 voting lawsuits. Okay, 143 cases went to court. Uh now sixty sixty uh, some odd of them were actually in the post-election. So so you know, that distorted the number. In in 2022, there were 175. So there's actually more uh, there were, 2022 is actually a more litigated election. Than 2020 was, and by the way, there were far fewer post-election cases, obviously, in 2022 than 2025. The good news is that that the you know the courts are the one branch of government, as imperfect as it is, that is still standing up for democracy. So you know, after 2020, we saw Donald Trump and his team lose 64 of 65 lawsuits in 2022. um, you know, of the 175 uh, cases, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of them were were decided in favor of voting rights. Uh, so, you know, about 70 percent of the cases wind up being wins for the good guys, not the bad guys. But, but you know, that is a pattern that I think we're going to continue to see play out as we go head towards 2024.
0: And just to give people a sense of What you're talking about, when, for example, they had armed people at drop boxes in Arizona, you sued to make those people stop intimidating um, the voters and you won. Um, And that's the kind of really blatant conduct that you're up against. Um, In addition to the legislative changes that they've made, it's this conduct that is just brazen at this point.
1: Yeah, so I I sometimes talk about a continuum, and it is a continuum between voter suppression and election subversion, right? Voter suppression is where you make it harder for people to vote. Election subversion is where you target the counting and certification of elections. And voter intimidation straddles those two, right? It straddles. It can be a type of of suppression. It can be a type of of um, of uh, subversion, Um, but we are definitely seeing Republicans become more and more brazen and what I, Think of as the latter part of voting. Now they're still passing laws targeting voter voter registration and voting methods. But you know, it wasn't just the intimidation at drop boxes that you mentioned in Arizona. You know, Cochise County, Arizona, was refusing to accurately count and certify election results. Kerry uh, Lake to this day is still litigating you know, the, the election results of the last uh, election. We saw in Pennsylvania some counties refusing uh, to certify uh, election results. So it's there is a and, and of course, in state after state, we see Republicans passing laws that make certification more suspect or, or harder, counting harder and, and challenging voters at the polls easier. So so we're seeing this whole continuum from from registration, to certification, all coming under attack at a time that our election officials are you know, frankly, are thinning their ranks. I mean, it's harder to get people to work polls if they're going to be in the middle of, you know, all of this nonsense.
0: And it's harder to get them to come back if they have served. So you have turnover after every election and you have large numbers of people who may be very well-meaning but are inexperienced in dealing with these kinds of situations. You know, it does remind me that Really, what Donald Trump was engaged in, we like to say he was a coup. It was an attempt to overturn the um, election. But in large part, this was just massive voter suppression and voter chicanery um, on a national scale that we've never seen. Who was he intimidating in Georgia? It was people like Ruby Freeman in Fulton County. Uh, Where was he seeking to throw out votes in Detroit, Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, gosh, what do all these things have to do with one another? Well, it's racial um, repression. I do want to point out, in case people should be getting too depressed, that to some degree, we've won the battle insofar as Republicans are now no longer trying to... uh, completely shut down early voting and absentee voting, they're actually trying to get their people to do it because they realize, oh my gosh, this is bad for our side too. It makes it hard for our voters, many of whom are older voters, for example, or rural voters to vote. Is that kind of a victory in a sense that when the other guys kind of give up trying to jimmy the election and instead try to actually turn their people out that were returning to not normalcy, but um, at least an appropriate method of engaging in election politics?
1: Look, I think the jury is out on that, Jen. Um, There is no question that there are more institutional forces in the Republican Party. And by the way, I don't just mean like mainstream Republicans, I mean even some MAGA Republicans, there are more institutional forces that are pushing in the direction you say. Um, but you know, the jury is out. Donald Trump is still lying about vote by mail, right? And Terry Lake is still lying and spreading disinformation about you know uh, early voting and vote by mail. So, so whether. It is yes. The RNC is doing what you are saying, encouraging their voters to 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 vote in these methods. But you know, the North Carolina legislature is passing a law to make to make early voting and vote by mail harder. You know, Arizona, Ohio passed a law earlier this year to to target those things. So so I think there is a battle within the Republican Party on this. Um, you know, sometimes I, I say that you know the the if the RNC Wants to stop targeting the thing. They haven't told their lawyers yet, you know, because the lawyers are still litigating against vote by mail and um, and early voting. So we'll see what happens. I'm not. I'm not as optimistic. I think as some are, especially if Donald Trump is the nominee. I think if Donald Trump is the nominee, he's going to continue to spread disinformation, and the Republican Party is not going to stand up to him.
0: Absolutely. little bit about Ohio, where they're trying to get on the ballot a neutral commission to administer um, redistricting lines. Is that going to work? Republicans are doing all kinds of handstands in various states to try to prevent these kind of messages. Is it a good idea, a bad idea? Could it make a difference?
1: So look, you know, at the same time that um, Alan V. Milligan went to the Supreme Court. There were two other states that um, uh, my firm had been involved in winning cases below. One was in Louisiana, and we're facing a little bit of the same. Uh, the state of Louisiana is no more eager to comply with uh, the court orders that Alabama is. And the other was Ohio. Um, the Ohio case was a little different because the, the, there the state already had some parameters on. Partisan gerrymandering that the state supreme court sort of the state supreme court kept striking down the Republican drawn map, but not actually instituting any remedy. Um, so you're right. So now there's another ballot initiative effort uh, in Ohio, uh, which I support and which is needed to get on the ballot to really end the kind of gamesmanship that we've seen. I think the question, Jen, is whether the the highly partisan courts in some of these states will even in I mean I would argue that the that the last uh effort to reform uh fair districting in Ohio should be yielding a fair map that in in Florida which after all a ballot initiative passed they called the fair district amendments and this and you know and the republican just republican legislature ignored that the question is, how do we get enforcement of these things? So I'm, I'm, I support it. I think it's important. Hopefully, it'll pass. But you know, uh, hopefully, the the where we have Republican-controlled courts, um, they will enforce those laws.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if they're now going back and saying, and we really mean it! Underline exclamation mark because they've asked for this before. Again, lawlessness, refusal to follow um, the plain letter of the law. Wisconsin had an election early this year that I like to think of as one of the most important, which was their Supreme Court, that they had a one candidate who was clearly a Republican hat, for lack of a better term, uh, was going to support institution of a 19th century abortion ban, was going to keep in place a redistricting that was ridiculous, considering this is literally a 50-50 state, but its congressional de- delegation is very heavily uh, Republican. And the other candidate who was a Democrat who said, you know, I'm going to do something judges don't often do. I'm going to tell you what my values are. My values are that I believe in privacy and I believe in voting democracy. And she won. So what's going to happen, do you think, there? In re- potentially redrawing those lines, and we um, we get a more balanced, fair composition of Wisconsin congressional. Yeah, members. so
1: so look, there is no Supreme Court that I worried about more than the Wisconsin Supreme Court prior to the most recent election. Um, it's probably fair to say that the distance traveled between the Supreme Court majority that was and the Supreme Court majority that is is as is as far <laughs> as any place in the country and i i think that the People of Wisconsin have lived under some of the most extreme partisan gerrymandering in the country, and take that from someone who has litigated extreme partisan gerrymanders. Uh, you know, I was involved in you know striking down the North Carolina partisan gerrymander, which was pretty extreme. But but Wisconsin's been among the worst, particularly for the state legislature. And so, the people of Wisconsin will finally, hopefully, have a chance to have meaningful elections for. Public office, you know, which is a cornerstone and a necessity in a democracy. Now, I I've read recently that that incredibly, the Republican legislature is at least making noises. I don't want to say threatening because I don't know if it's that far. but Making noises about impeaching the justice yes. who hasn't done anything. I mean, that's, they, right. they they want to like proactively prevent there from being not, no more partisan gerrymandering in the state. It's just, it, Jen, it's crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, it is the only place I have ever been to cover an election, and I went out there in February, God knows why I picked February, to talk to voters in which ordinary voters said, I'm going to vote for this judge because of gerrymandering. You never get that. Voters never vote on gerrymandering, but it was so bad, it was so offensive to people that they finally made the connection between gerrymandering and their own ability to influence the government that's supposed to work for them. So it was a telling moment, I think, um, that there was some limit to the degree to which that very Republican legislature can cook the books, as it were. 2024. In the last Congress, they passed a amendment to the Electoral Count Act, which is the statute that governs the kind of process and the counting and the certification of electors. That was the law that was subverted, twisted, if you will, by the Trump crew in order to postulate that somehow Mike Pence had the power to ignore or throw out electoral votes, didn't win. But people like you and me were alarmed enough to say, hey, um, there's some real problems here. Maybe we better close some loopholes to deter future presidents from trying this stuff. First, did it work? And secondly, what are you most concerned about in 2024? Is it that or are other things, do you think, more pressing?
1: Yeah, so look, I I think it was important to pass a fix to the Electoral Count Act, not because what Donald Trump did in 2020 was not clearly illegal, it was, um, but because, as you say, it was important to, to modernize this statute to deal with what we have learned. So I think that was an important reform. I think that you said something earlier that I think we all need to be sober about, about winning battles. Right? You can win battles but you not win wars and the war that is going on is an effort by the Republican Party and Donald Trump if he's their nominee to use every tactic legal and illegal to subvert the will of the voters and 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 gain power so what am I worried about I'm worried that we could have a level of of Voter suppression and election subversion. Remember, Jen, before before you get to the electoral college, you need governors to sign certificates, right? That's, that is with the certification of the electors. Well, we dodged a bullet with a bunch of gubernatorial elections, so that's great. Um, before governors certify, though, you need canvassing boards to certify. And remember, and I've been a little surprised this hasn't been in any of the indictments. Remember, in Michigan, Donald Trump and his forces put a lot of pressure on first the Detroit canvassing board, the Wayne County Board, and then the Michigan State canvassing board, which was two Democrats and two Republicans. And as I recall, it was a vote of three to one. One of the Republicans voted against it. Well, what have the Republicans been doing with these canvass board nominations? So I'm very worried that in 2024, yeah, we're going to see voter suppression. Yeah, we are going to see um, uh, you know intimidation at polls and 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 that stuff. And we're in court and trying to fight all those things right now. But you know, our 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 system of certifying of counting votes and certifying elections is meant to be a pageant of democracy it is meant to be this cascading set of local meetings followed by county meetings followed by state meetings there's certificates and ribbons put on certificates and, and it's a pageant of democracy it is a celebration whether you're kind of won or lost that everyone gets together and counts and recounts and certifies and everything and donald trump weaponized that And so what we need to recognize is that whatever battles are won or lost along the way, the war is still going on.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting that you put it that way because whoever thought that a local canvassing board, which is, by and large, these people, if they're paid anything, it's something minuscule and they donate their time essentially to doing this, would be the subject of presidential Arm twisting and lawyers getting on the phone with them, telling them what shenanigans they can participate in. Now, there was a Supreme Court case um, that could have made things a whole lot worse, (laughs) and um, it didn't work. Um, And that, of course, is the state um, independent legislature uh, case. Um, And the Supreme Court miraculously somehow decided um, that, no, it turns out that state legislatures can't do whatever they want. There are still state Supreme Courts. You were involved in that case and came out on the winning side. Why do you think you guys won? What do you think kind of pushed the Supreme Court back? And remember, a couple of these justices have expressed extreme interest in this nonsense from Bush v. Gore and other cases that they were really tempted, and by the way, some of them voted that way, to essentially say state legislatures can do whatever they want, change votes, re-vote, whatever they want, because somehow the Constitution lets them do that. How did you talk them out of that? And what could that have meant if it had worked?
1: Yeah. So, first of all, what it would have meant if it worked was that state legislatures could pass whatever voting laws they want, including around presidential elections, congressional federal elections, congressional Senate and and presidential elections. They could draw whatever congressional districts they want, and state courts would be powerless to do anything about it. And in fact, in its most extreme form, governors couldn't even veto those, right? So I'll spare everyone doctrinally kind of what the—why this parade of horribles was even before the court. But but that's what was before the court. And the court backed away, as you say. It backed away. And I think there the question I that you ask is a good one, and it's one I get asked a lot, which is that, you know, essentially there were two— voting cases. And in both cases, the Supreme Court backed away. I mean, in some ways, it was surprising they backed away from the ISL case out of North Carolina that you mentioned. It's equally surprising or more surprising they backed away to many people from the Voting Rights Act case because Justice, Chief Justice Roberts had been so hostile to it. Right. And then and so um I think the answer on the ISL case Specific to that case is that independent state legislature doctrine was always sort of a bumper sticker, but it was never really a legal doctrine. And I think that the court found itself through the process of briefs and oral arguments trying to figure out, like, what's the limiting principle? Because, you know. Yes, it is true that the U.S. Constitution says that that state legislatures shall set the time, place, and manner of elections. But, you know, there are lots of places in the Constitution where it says Congress— should do can do something, and the Supreme Court has interpreted Congress to mean subject to the courts, and so how it was going to navigate Marbury versus Madison against right. this was like always a little bit um, unclear. But but Jen, I think the larger the what may one of the larger forces that I I, I want to make sure to address before people think wow this was really great you you know these voting cases turned out well. Remember the context that the Supreme Court was in the middle of dismantling large chunks of its precedent. You know, obviously, you could start with Dobbs, the term before you had the affirmative action cases, which no matter what the Supreme Court said clearly was overruling uh, <laughs> prior precedent. You had the, uh, the you know, the jurisdictionally questionable <laughs> uh, Colorado case. Um, you know, so there were a lot of other things going on. And I, I do wonder if in these voting cases, the court just thought, you know, there was no way to rule against us in the, in the Section 2 case, in the Alabama case, without overturning scores a precedent since 1986, and there was really no way for them to adopt the independent state legislature doctrine. I mean, people point to Bush versus Gore. But the Bush versus Gore opinion they're pointing to is not a majority opinion. So they would have had to overturn a lot of, of state court precedent, uh, uh, to to rule the other way in ISL, but it doesn't mean that the courts are done. Like they can always revisit these voting cases. but unfortunately, Jen as you know because you write on all of these subjects. The Supreme Court's got a lot on its agenda a lot of bad things on its agenda. Uh, and it maybe we just dodged voting because it had too many other bad things that wanted to get done.
0: And among those is essentially dismantling the administrative state, holding that Congress is supposed to micromanage the fine points of EPA law of every government agency rather than affording them some room to come up with rules, even if Congress actually in those cases said, we'd like the agency to come up with some rules in this area. So I think part of what we're seeing and I don't think I'm exaggerating. The sense of lawlessness comes from the court itself. The court itself is not paying attention to the statutes that are before it. The court itself is not respecting precedent. The lawlessness, unfortunately, is in the house. the 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 nine one one is coming from within the house, within the courts.
1: Yeah, the one and, the one thing the one thing on that front that I I you know if I had a if I had a if there was someone from the Federalist Society on this podcast, which there isn't, um, you know, I practice in a particular area, but I, I try to stay abreast of the law in, in other areas. And I have to say, um, the Supreme Court seems to have made up a doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine. Like, you know, the Federalist Society used to – the conservatives used to say, you know, we're textualists. We we read the statutes for what they are. We read the – you know, all of a sudden the Supreme Court literally made up out of seemingly thin air a question that limits Congress's ability uh, to delegate authority to regulatory agencies. Uh, And I I, – you know. Like I said, Jen, maybe you in your in your in your role as a columnist, you you come across more uh, of the Federalist Society types, but I I'm not really sure I understand what the conservative argument is for, for that.
0: There isn't and just to spell this out, they say, well, when the thing that we're talking about is really big and really important, then we go through this other analysis and essentially disable whatever the rulemaking is, unless it's explicit. The problem is that's not any kind of judgment that a court should be making. Oh, this is a really important thing. (laughs) Therefore, we get to supersede what rulemaking. And secondly, in cases where the legislature, where Congress specifically said we want to give rulemaking authority, they still say that's not good enough. And that reminds me of what we were talking earlier, and we really mean it. What is Congress supposed to do? So this is what gives some of us the nagging sensation that they're making it up as they go along. You know, when I was in law school back in the dark ages, there was a whole school of thought, legal realism, that said, we shouldn't be teaching doctrines. We should just figure out what all the judges think and go from there. And no, 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 that's unprincipled. That's really, you know, disrespectful towards the rule of law. I think that's where we are. I don't know how people teach law school these days because it's just, well, whatever Justice Thomas thinks, whatever the Federalist Society has on their agenda. It sure doesn't seem like, as a practitioner in your area and other areas, there's a whole lot of certainty and a whole lot of reliance you can put on precedent over the last few decades.
1: Yeah, I've said the same thing that that you just said, um, you know, one of the, one in law school, one of the hardest and most important classes is something called federal courts which is basically the law of how federal courts operate what cases they hear what cases they don't hear things like standing things like jurisdiction things like abstention doctrines right all these all these very arcane things and like I don't know how you teach that in law school I mean because it's very hard to figure out based on the supreme court's decisions what exactly the doctrine of standing for example or jurisdiction means uh, it seems very results driven both at the federal uh, at the at the u.s Supreme Court but but also in many of the lower courts the courts of appeals um, you know are 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 all over the place
0: and I do think back to my federal court teacher who actually literally wrote the book Professor Mishkin, who was a very renowned scholar and You know, talking about these issues, he would always point to the cases, point to the law and says, where does it say that? Where does it say that? Case and controversy has to mean something. It's a limiting principle. And when we talk about the politicization of courts, that's, it's arcane stuff, talking about standing, talking about political question. But what it basically means is Courts can't go roving through the landscape, enabling political fights, choosing sides, invalidating laws just because they feel like it. There have to be real disputes between real people in the form of a proper piece of litigation. And we're losing that. And as a result, there's a little bit of chaos right now in the federal courts.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I read the... uh the uh, the case, you know you read the some of the cases out of the federal court in Texas that Republicans keep going to on the, uh, particularly on the abortion cases. It's very hard It's very hard to understand uh, those cases, you know, other than in the context of politics. You know, it's very hard to understand them in traditional analyzing them using traditional principles. I thought that the Supreme Court, you know, it got it got, it got overrun essentially by Dobbs. But I thought that the way the federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, um, dealt with the, that Texas law about um, allowing private parties to sue Over abortions and as a way to somehow dodge court review, I I thought that was I thought the way the courts and the Supreme Court dealt with that was just very, very problematic, very troubling and and, and hard to justify hard to imagine that if New York or California passed a similar law about guns, that uh, that the Supreme Court would not have immediately stepped in.
0: Oh, no, 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 we can't have that. You see, the Second Amendment is one of the amendments that we really pay attention to. That's one of the really important ones, you see. Well, Mark, you are a national treasure, not just a treasure for the Democratic Party, because what you're doing is defending the rule of law, defending voter rights. If people want to learn more about your work, I'm going to suggest they go to Democracy Docket, which I visit almost every day, which has a compendium of cases that are ongoing, has discussion of a lot of these issues. And you don't have to be a lawyer to read it, um, it's kind of right there. Um, So as we wrap up, Mark, what parting words would you give to listeners and to voters? What can they do? What's the role of the average person in promoting fair elections, promoting democracy? What what can the average person do?
1: Yeah, so I get this question a lot, and people feel hopeless or powerless, and they shouldn't. I mean, the fact is that when... When in history we have faced challenges to free and fair elections and democracy time and time again, the way in which those have been those challenges have been overcome um, and uh, uh, and uh, anti-democratic forces defeated is by people standing up and speaking out. So, you know. Jen, not everyone is going to have the platform that you have. You are read by millions of people and listened to by thousands and tens of thousands of people. Um, So not everyone has your platform, but everyone has a platform. Everyone has a town square. And so what I'd ask everyone to do is to speak out and, and don't avoid the hard conversations. Engage the hard conversations. Don't turn away from your crazy uncle or your neighbor who is spreading misinformation. Stand up and say it's not okay when we are suppressing people's right to vote. It is not okay when we are targeting minorities. It is not okay when we are taking away a woman's right to choose. Or we are demonizing uh, gay and lesbian or transgendered individuals. It's not okay and if everyone stands up in their town square whether it's on social media or their dinner table or their 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 coffee you know their coffee or book club if everyone does that then we can defeat this but if people are afraid to speak up they want to avoid the they want to avoid those then then i worry about the future so what everyone can do is they can take to their town square and they can stand up for what is right and if everyone does that and shows the kind of courage that you do day in and day out in what you do for a living then i think we're going to be okay
0: well fine words but uh, the hero in this conversation is you mark who carries the fight all the way to the supreme court And seems to have more hours in the day than the rest of us, since every time I look at that democracy docket, you have 10 more cases or 15 more cases. So thank you for being on the show. But more importantly, thank you for everything you do for democracy and for voting rights. Take care. Thanks. And that was Mark Elias. What a national treasure he is. And... I think his closing remarks are really, really important. What authoritarians depend upon is confusion and apathy. They want you to believe that it's hopeless, that they are infecting and controlling so many aspects of society, the courts, legislature, the press, that it's just too overwhelming and all you can do is curl up in a ball and hide. But... That, of course, is the death knell of democracy. Democracy is a participatory activity. It depends on all of us. So, Mark is exactly right. you got to use your town square. you got to vote. And you got to volunteer as a poll worker, since those people are really uh, becoming as scarce as, uh, as anything. You can run for office yourself. You can run for the canvassing board. You can run for city council. You can support candidates. You can give money to groups that litigate for voting rights. And there are many of them do, including the NAACP, including the ACLU. You can follow quality news outlets that report on this stuff. And for goodness sakes, Limit your social media. It's making us all crazy. When I tell people this, I'm sure that they get nervous at the Washington Post and other outlets because, oh, no, 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 they have to be on social media. They have to catch everything that we're writing. Well, you know where to find me. I'm at the Washington Post. The more you stay on social media and the more you doom scroll, the more depressed and angry you're going to get unless you're going to feel like getting up and actually doing something. So following the crazies on social media is not doing something. It's making you crazy, but it's not doing something. What you should be doing is getting out there and being a proactive citizen. So I hope you all do. Thank you for listening. If you like the show and you like our other show, please tell your friends. And remind them they can listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.